If you have your Bibles, please open to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It's going to be the text for us this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 8 to 20. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 8 to 20. By God's goodness and providence, I was able to go through this book verse by verse for the last four years or so. I'm thankful that we are here in this text this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 8 to 20 reads, He who digs a pit may fall into it. The serpents may bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits logs may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does not, ex- and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princess feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indulgence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchambers, do not curse the king, and in your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. During my early days in life, not that long ago, but there was a time in my life where I liked to visit bookstores, and particularly the spiritual side in the bookstore. Uh, Oftentimes, that spiritual side is next to the self-help side. The reason why I like to go towards the spiritual side because it gives me just an idea of what's going on in, in, in American evangelicalism. And occasionally, I'll look over to the self-help side and I notice that some of these self-help books have these questions that they won't be answered. And yet, it is fascinating that even though they have all of these questions, right next to it, the spiritual side, oftentimes there'll be a Bible. And I was often think like, well, the spiritual, uh, well, the, the self-help question, all of these things could be answered in the Bible. Things like, how do I manage my finances? Or how do I deal with stress? How do I deal with anxiousness? How do I have a happy marriage? How can I find meaning in life? All of those questions on the self-help portion can be solved in this one book in the spiritual side, which is the Bible. And then in my own little immaturity, sometimes I wish I could just take the sleeve off of those self-help books and put the Bible in there, just so that when they purchase a book, they, have, think, they think this book is about how to manage stress, and they open it and they see the Bible. Or when they think, how can I fix my marriage? They open it and they see the Bible. How do I find meaning in life? And they can open it and they find the Bible. 
And it is sad to know that even though these questions that these self-help gurus try to answer, these questions are actually legitimate and actually quite profound. But the answer to them is not found in those things. Rather, it is only found in the scriptures. Now, it is sad when non-believers try to find answers out of, from outside of scripture, but it's even worse when believers don't know how to answer these questions. When believers do not know how to manage their stress or deal with anxiousness or, or parenting or marriage or whatever life has to throw at them, they don't know where to go in scriptures to how to find these answers. True happiness, <coughs> true, happiness true meaning, true answers are only found in God and God's word alone. And this text gives us principle about how you can live life well in a fallen world. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. He's, he wrote this book in a lot of ways. This is his last book of his life. He's, ending, he's reaching the end of his life, and he wants to have one more book written so that people can know how they can live life in a fallen world. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. He wrote the Songs of Solomon. But Ecclesiastes is unique in, in a lot of ways because it shows us the things that he's learned in his life. The first six chapters of Ecclesiastes, he goes through this journey. He takes us on to this journey about how to answer the most philosophical questions in life. What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of all of these things? And he concludes that life is completely vain without God. That if you try to live life with pleasure with, or anything in life without the Lord, it is completely meaningless. And Solomon understands this because he spent his whole life wasting it. He was a young king, and during this time when he first reigned, he asked God to give him discernment, he asked God to give him wisdom, and yet for a while he brought Israel to the heights that have never been known at the time. But yet, it is revealed to us in First Kings that his heart was turned away from the Lord, that he pursued after the things of the world, and his heart was turned away for a season. And the book of Ecclesiastes really documents his entire journey. All the things they've done, all of the foolishness that he's done, all the things he tried to acquire in his life, all the pleasures that he tried to experience, everything came down to the fact that it doesn't even matter. Because without God, everything feels completely empty. The word vanity is the word that shows up throughout this entire book, and it just means a breath. Or in, me, in our modern translation, maybe soap bubbles or steam off of a cof, on, out of a coffee. It's something that you see for a moment and then instantly it's gone. And that is our life. That is our careers. That is our pleasure. That is everything in our life. It just passes very quickly from one state to another. So when we get into this last half of Ecclesiastes, uh, from chapter 7 on, it, it, these are just the practical applications of what you're supposed to do with that. Knowing that this world is completely empty without God, that you can't find any meaning or purpose or pleasure without God, then what are you supposed to do about this? And chapter 10, in the passage for us this morning, shows us how we can live well in light of a fallen world, in light of a world that's passing away. In this short and futile life, how can we live life well? It's going to be the outline for us this morning. There's seven ways that you can live well in this life. And the first is this, that life works well for you if you have awareness. Life works well for you if you have awareness. 
Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, this sounds familiar if you are familiar with the book of Psalms. There is a psalm in Psalm chapter 7 where David writes about how the enemies are trying to dig a hole to trap David, but instead they fall into it. Uh, This is not what's going on here. I don't think Solomon is writing here to speak of this man that is plotting evil or trying to do something sinful. Rather, this guy is just working, and he just so happens to fall into the hole that he, he made. This isn't about someone just trying to plan or plot evil. Rather, it's just normal occupational hazards. Solomon is trying to get to the fact that sometimes if you're not aware or mindful of your work, you might get hurt at work. This person was not mindful at his job and he gets injured. And we understand if you ever go into Uber and the guy that is the Uber driver is maybe texting or playing video games, you might want to jump out of the car because he might get in an accident because he's distracted. He's not all there. This person here that Solomon describes is someone like that. He's working and he gets hurt. Now I know that sometimes we can give attention and be aware of our work and sometimes things don't work out and we still get hurt on the job. But generally speaking, if you are fully there and you're fully attentive and engaged with the task at hand, it will go well for you. You need to be aware if you want to avoid getting hurt. And Solomon, again, also here describes a man that's trying to break this wall down. He's trying to do some sort of constructions. And as he becomes a Kool-Aid man and breaks through this wall, a snake comes and bites him. Now, if he, was atten- if, he was a- if he was smart enough and was attentive, he would probably maybe check the wall a little bit, maybe knock on the wall and check and see if there's any holes where a snake can go into the walls. But he doesn't. He ends up breaking this wall, and the wall ends up, or at least the thing inside the wall, ends up breaking him. Verse 9, it talks about this man that carries a stone, and then he gets hurt by it. And it could be that this person is working hard and eventually gets exhausted and he lifts up this other rock, it just lands on him. Or it could be possible that he underestimates the weight of the rock and he thinks, yeah, I'm going to do this. And he lifts it up and it lands on him. And if you go to the gym, you understand what this is like. There's sometimes people that maybe shouldn't be lifting nine plates aside, I'm going to do this for the Instagram. And it's like, (laughs) it doesn't go well for them. Right? It's kind of sad because they lift that bar and it's co-called ambulance. You know, they overestimate their own ability. They underestimate the weight of the rock. And that's what's going on here. Solomon's saying just be aware of what's going on around you so that you won't get hurt. And then the other illustration he talks about is about a man who splits a log may be endangered by them. Now, this is apparently, I mean, chopping wood is, I don't know, I mean, I guess it is a profession, but it's it was common back then. In fact, Deuteronomy 19 talks about how if there's a guy that cuts wood, they need to make sure that the, the, the axe, the, the sharp end of the axe is tied correctly because if they swing this axe and the head falls off and, and hurts someone, they're going to have to pay for it. It's being attentive to the details of your life and keep you safe. And that's what Solomon's trying to get at. And, and for us as application, we need to understand that we too need to be attentive at our work because we live in a culture where we are incredibly, we're so easily distracted by the things that's going on. You can go to work and you can have multiple screens going on and only one of the screens actually working. You have watching a YouTube video here and watching Netflix on this other screen. You're listening to your podcast and you're at work. You know, those people usually 
they don't do well at their work because they often would miss some sort of detail and then end up harming them and other people. Our culture is full of distractions and we may think, oh, we can multitask. And maybe for some people in the world, that is true. But just a word to the wise, that, that may not be you. You, some of us, may need to just get rid of as many distractions as possible so that we could be fully there and engaged with the task at hand. We want to be there and be fully engaged so that we won't get hurt or maybe potentially hurt other people in life. Not only can you live well if you are aware about what's going on around you, but life also works well for you if you work with wisdom. Our second point is that life works well with wisdom. Verse 10, if the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Solomon saying that you need to prepare for work. Uh, if you want your work to be efficient, you want to prepare for that. And, this, and there, there's difficulty in trying to cut wood with a dull axe. It requires more work. It requires more effort to get the same results. And wisdom teaches us that if you just think about what you have, if you just apply wisdom, then you'll be more efficient with your job. And we are familiar with this quote, work smarter, not harder. And that's what Solomon's trying to get at here. Verse 11, if a serpent bites before being charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Being a snake charmer requires technical skill. And it was a profession back then, and I think it's still legal in some parts of the world. I'm not condoning snake charming. If that's what you want to do, you grow up, you maybe want to talk to your parents or Pastor Roger about that. But have you ever considered what does it take to be a snake charmer? Like, how does one become a snake charmer? Well, well, the most obvious thing is that you need to catch a snake, but it's not like you go to Petco and say, I want that snake. Back then, you actually have to hunt for one. You have to study how, a snakes, how snakes move and where they would live and hide, and you need to find a way to catch the snake. But after you catch the snake, it's not like the snake will be, okay, you got me, now let's do business together. You play this instrument, now start dancing. That's not how it works. Because after they catch the snake, what they would need to do is defang the snake. Because they understand that if, if, if the snake comes out, they might get bitten. So they have to defang the snake and then put it in the basket. And then once they are ready, they'll, take the, they'll open the lid of the basket and the snake comes out. But you realize that that's not actually what the snake is doing. When it comes up, it's not like, okay, you win, I'm going to start dancing for you now. The reason why snakes do what they do is because when they come out of the basket, there's a person blowing this little instrument, this flute thing, and he's usually sitting on the floor with his knees, you know, crisscross applesauce. He's sitting there, he's like wiggling back and forth, his knees are going up and down, he's playing this huge flute. And the snake is not like amused by the sound. He's not like, oh, this is a nice beat. He's not dancing. He doesn't even hear what's going on. They don't have ears. What's actually going on is that the snake is terrified. The snake is just kind of moving. It sees this huge object, and it's like kind of going back and forth. It's moving here and there, and the snake's just trying to figure out how to go, how to either escape or, 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 or to evade. It doesn't, it's just terrified of what's going on. You could do whatever you want with that. I'm not condoning snake charming. I'm just saying, this is what's going on back then. This is how people made money. But you understand that a novice snake charmer that if they mess up in any part uh, of this whole process, that they will get hurt. 
You know, if they don't catch a snake, they're not going to be a snake charmer. If they catch a snake and they don't defang it, then the snake will bite them back. And Solomon is trying to get to the point that you need to prepare well if you want to make money in life, if you want to live well in life. Even the most experienced person, if they have a lot of knowledge and they don't know how to apply that knowledge, it is completely useless. Wisdom teaches you to know how to apply what you know to the circumstances at hand. It's completely useless if you know a lot and you don't know how to apply it. That's lack of wisdom. But a wise person knows how to use what they know and the circumstance they're in. Be wise and find ways to be more efficient at what you do. And for you students here, if you're a college student, if you're high school students, or any student, uh, homeschool, whatever it may be, the best way for you to be efficient is actually not to cram during the last week of finals. The best way to study for you is just to study every single day. Just study just 30 minutes every single day. Make it a discipline in your life so that when it is finals week, you already have hours and hours of study under your belt. So in a lot of ways, it's just review for you. And for others of you at work, you may need to do more preparation just so that you can present your projects well. Or sometimes the most efficient thing that you can do is just to sleep. Just rest. You don't need to pull all-nighters because you're not going to be efficient at your work. Some of the most excellent accomplishments are by effective people who know how to do things extremely efficient. Some of the most excellent accomplishments in the world are done and created by effective people who knows how to do things with extreme efficiency. Work smarter, not harder. If you want to live well, not only do you need awareness of what's going on around you or have wisdom, but third, life works well with you if you know when to be silent. Life works well with silence. Verse 12, words from the mouth of a wise are gracious, while the lips of a fool consume him. Watch your words. Solomon understands that the mouth has this ability to build up, has the ability to tear down, has the ability to create things and also to destroy things. And it also has this powerful way to reveal to other people whether or not you are a wise person or a fool. What you say or don't say can make your life better or worse. And Solomon here points to this to a wise person who knows how to use his word graciously. And this word gracious is exactly that. That when you hear this person talk, especially if you're the intended audience, you feel that it's undeserved. Because this wise person knows how to build you up. He's saying things to you that knows how to encourage you. A wise person knows how to build up using the right words. Or a wise person knows the right word to say at the right time, and every time you hear them talk, you can't help but feel encouraged. At the same time, there are those who do the opposite. Whereas a wise man knows how to bring the best out of people, there is a fool that all they do is tear down. They use their words to harm other people. And yet Solomon actually spends a lot of time talking about the fool, and what the outcome of the things that they say. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. Solomon writes, There is one who speaks rashly like a thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 7. A fool's mouth 
is his ruin. His lips are the snare of his soul. Solomon seems to explain that this person, the more he talks, the more foolish things that he will say, which is in contrast to the wise person. When the wise person speaks, you want to hear more of it because it's filled with grace. Notice that he says that the, the word of fool will consume them. That means that the, the words that come out of his mouth will eventually turn back and consume him. It will consume the fool. Literally, it will eat him up. The infinite amount of words that the fool says will have an infinite amount of possibility of destroying his own life. And for some, a foolish person and his words can upset those that hear it. And for others, a fool's speech ruins and tarnishes relationships and reputations. A foolish word can also be a person that reveals something that is just better left unsaid. But once it's said, the damage is done. Now I know if you are married, you know what that's like. Some of your conflicts only happen because you wish you did not say that. You wish you could just take it back. Be wise with your words. Have self-awareness of the things that you say. Verse 13, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 13. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end of it is wicked madness. This, word, this verse here reveals that a fool's speech seems inane, it seems stupid or silly to start, but the end result is insanity. This fool, his words are filled with evil, the words of fool begin at one point where it sounds illogical, it sounds dumb, but it gets worse as they keep on talking. A fool's words will always progress from bad to worse to insanity. If you listen to a person, a foolish person talk, it would seem that they are progressively becoming worse and worse and becoming more destructive as they speak. A fool reveals himself as a fool by the things that he says and the inability to stop talking. There's no desire for correction. There's no desire to, to have an opinion that can maybe change their own mind. Yet verse 14, it says, Yet the fool multiply words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? Fool tends to keep on talking. And again, this is not the first time Solomon addresses the fool and the things that they say. We you go look through the book of Proverbs, but even in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he talks about when you enter into the place of worship, when you go into the house of worship, it's better that you don't say that many words. Solomon seems to believe that a foolish person's life is completely unpredictable, and it seems impossible to warn him of his own destruction. It just seems impossible to predict what they will do because their mind is unpredictable. Foolish people will never cease to surprise you on how low that they can go. The fool is also someone that is just very presumptuous. They assume they know what the future holds. They assume that their knowledge and their logic makes perfect sense, and no one convinced them otherwise that their interpretation and their outlook of life is completely flawed. I mean, just think about all the doomsday cult teachers. Right? Throughout church history, there's always people that say that the end of the world is here, and then they would plan a date, they'll set a time, so they'd sell everything, because we're, on this day we're going to meet at the park, and Christ's going to return, we're all going to be raptured away, and when that date comes, what happens? The world keeps on going, and then that leader is found out to be a fool. The wise thing for you and I to do is to not talk so much. Don't talk about things that we know nothing about. A person that is wise and mature is someone that knows and is mindful of his own limitations and knows not to speak. Yet when a wise person speaks, they speak 
and the, and the words are careful, it is clear, and it's concise. Most of our interpersonal relationships in life are broken by the things that we say. I was in college in one of my classes, I think it was some political science class, and the professor, the first day in class, he was like, all right, class, the first thing you need to know about the world is this. If a cop pulls you over, the first thing you need to say is I want to speak to a lawyer. And someone behind me immediately was like, that's what's up, man. I was like, that's not, okay, that's, I mean, it's true, that's true. Like, if sometimes if, you're, if police pulls you over and you say something that you don't mean, you might get in trouble for it. Or even like Aesop's fable. He has this fable called the tortoise and the ducks. And this little tale is about this tortoise that envied all these other birds that are able to fly around and see the world. And this tortoise gets upset and he wants to see, he covets what they have. And all of a sudden these little two ducks just waddle by and say, hey, tortoise, we can take you. We can take you on this, uh, on this journey so you can see the world. Uh, and the tortoise gets excited. Like, How would you do this? And, tortoise ha- and the, the, the ducks have this plan. They say, okay, we'll hold the stick in the middle and we'll fly on each side and all you have to do is hold on with your mouth. And the tortoise agrees. He clings onto the stick in the middle and the Two ducks fly up in the air, and as they reach the highest point, a crow flies by, and he says, Surely, this must be the king of turtles. And the turtle responds, Well, certainly. (laughs) And that's the end of the fable. That's it. The point of this uh, fable, and even the illustration earlier, is that sometimes opening your mouth can bring a lot of harm to yourself. Have control over your mouth. Build a discipline to know how to stay silent. This is why in the book of James it tells us that if you can control your tongue, you will be perfect. Because if you, if you know how to control that small part of your body, you can control the rest of your body. Proverbs 21, verse 23, Solomon writes, He who guards his mouth and tongue guards his soul from trouble. If you want to live well in life, if you don't want the troubles of the world in life, know how to keep your mouth shut. Think before you speak. Life is better when you learn how to guard your mouth, guard your tongue, and know when to become silent. Now, obviously, Scripture is not talking about things like evangelism. It's not talking about confronting each other's sin. Those things are commands from Scripture. There are a lot of things that the Scripture tells us that we should do with our tongue. But there are areas where it could be a gray area or the Bible is silent about those are those areas where maybe it would be wise if you just don't say anything. Be wise with your speech. How can life work better for you? Just know when to be silent. Not only do you need awareness, you need wisdom, you be silent, but fourth, life works well for you if you exert effort. Life works well for you if you exert effort. Verse 15. The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. Psalm describes this fool and how he wearies himself. This word wearies is this constant. He just constantly makes himself make life difficult for himself with the excuses he makes. In this case, this person doesn't have, isn't willing to make the effort to get the job done. A foolish person takes work to stay foolish. They have to make excuses and excuses so that they do not reach the uh, accomplish, reach the goal that they want. Solomon describes this person that works hard, but to him, 
to get something to sell. He works hard at this. It could be some sort of fruit or some sort of thing that he's growing, but he doesn't know how to sell it. He doesn't make the effort to finish the job. This person hasn't thought things through. He plans to have these goals, but he doesn't have the ability or the desire to go and accomplish these things. A fool doesn't think or even know what to do next. The fool doesn't want to take the next step. He doesn't want to take the effort. He doesn't want to make the effort to be successful in life. And Solomon's saying, what a fool's talk is, is identical to their walk. It goes nowhere. The result is that they cannot find a way to a city, and all that he does avails to nothing. A small town may be difficult to, to find, but a major metropolis is hard to miss. If you go to the 101, if you're driving down south on the 101, there's going to be a sign that says Los Angeles. It's not to say that that means that Los Angeles is like five minutes away. It's to say that if you keep heading towards that direction, eventually you will hit Los Angeles. But the fool will see the sign that says Los Angeles. He thinks to himself, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. I know that's where I need to go, but yeah, I'm not doing it. He makes excuses for himself and he wearies himself because of it. Now, this seems strange to us because we live in a city and there are a lot of lazy people in the city. So to get the sense of what's going on here, just think of it as you living in a city and you say, where's my job application? Where, uh, where's my job uh, interview? And then you look at the GPS and it's like 0.2 miles away. You can take five minutes to walk there. And he looks at that and thinks to himself, no, I'm good. That's, that's too far. 0.2 miles? Do you have any idea how dangerous 0.2 miles is? This fool isn't willing to make the necessary effort to survive or even become yeah, not, not to become successful or even to, to survive. And you and I, as Christians, we need to make the necessary efforts if we want to do well in this life. Because we know that all of our talents, all of our abilities, all the things that we have, we need to give an account to the Lord to it. And the Lord is honored when we go all out for Him. When we work hard at our jobs, we make the effort. When we're not lazy, God is glorified in that. And when you do those things with, with maximum effort for, to the glory of God, your life will go well. If you work hard, you'll be fed. If you develop relationships, you'll have friends. Make the efforts in life so that you can be, live a life that, is, that goes well for you. Not only do you need awareness, wisdom, and silence and, be, and make the efforts, but fifth, life works well for you if you have the right priorities. Life works well for you if you have the right priorities. Verse 16, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. This seems to break away from the rest of the things that Solomon is talking about because he's here describing a king. And I think Solomon is trying to show us what happens when there is a king that does not do their job, when there's a king that does not have the right priorities. Because when a king does not have the right priorities, the result is that all the people that are under him are going to be hurt. It's dangerous to have a king who does not have the right priorities. However, if a king who is responsible for a nation fails to have the right priority, eventually everything falls apart. But if there is a responsible king, then things will go well for not just for him, but for the nation as well. You see that he uses the word lad here, and in different commentaries describe, interpret this as either 
a king that is a child king, and that happens. We see in the book of First and Second Kings that sometimes uh, uh, the, the father dies and the one that succeeds him is someone that's young. In fact, Solomon himself is like that. In First Kings chapter 3, verse 7, he understands his limitation. He was a young guy. He knows that he doesn't know how the world works. He knows that there are things that he doesn't know. So the wisest thing that he's done was ask God to give him discernment to govern the people. To know right and wrong, he needs that ability because he knows that his life does not, he doesn't have enough life in him to be able to counsel and shepherd and care for the nation of Israel. So it could be that. It could be that a ruler that's young in age. But at the same time, it could be a ruler that acts childish. It could be someone that should act like a king, should act like an adult, but instead they act like a child. Solomon's son is that example. Because when Solomon's son reigned, it took over Solomon's throne. He was 41 years old, and his son was crooked, corrupt, and a childish king. You can see that he describes it, that he feasts in the morning. And this isn't just talk about how, oh, well, he's having some sort of big, hearty breakfast. That's not what he's saying here. It's a, this feast in the morning is like a party. It's, it's a sign of debauchery, that he used his morning to party. Even in American culture, we understand how bizarre that is. If a guy gets up at 7.30 in the morning and is drunk by 7.31, we wouldn't exactly call that as a role model in our life because they are wasting their life. He parties hard and hardly works. And yet in verse 17, there's a contrast between this bad king in verse 16 and this good king in verse 17 because the, the king in verse 17 prioritizes the right things. Verse 16, the king in verse 16, he just squanders his life and the privilege and the opportunity he has, but the king in verse 17 has his priority in order. He knows when to eat. He even knows why he needs to eat. He knows to drink. He knows why he needs to drink. It's appropriate for him to eat these things so that he has strength, so he can govern people well. Solomon describes a king who doesn't have his priority straight, which in turn, which means that everyone that he governs is going to be at harm. It is at the expense of the people when the king has his priorities backwards. And the same way for us as well. When we don't have their priorities right in our own lives, it harms us and those around us. Solomon's saying that if you have your priorities off, if your priority is primarily on pleasure, then your priorities are off. If you are controlled by your own impulses, if you're controlled by your own desires, and to live for the moment, it will harm not just you, but those around you. If you're a student, you understand what this is like. If you have a group project, there's, all, there's bound to be that one person that does not pull their weight. They're always asking you to answer for them, and you find yourself having to work extra hard just so that one lazy student can pass. Otherwise, all of you guys will fail. If you're a coworker, you understand what that's like as well. If you know that there is a lazy coworker, you have to find ways to cover for them. It impacts you because of his own laziness. If you're a parent and you delegate chores to different members of your family to do in the house, if they fail to do those things, it impacts not just you or that other person, but everyone that lives at the home. It makes it difficult to live there. The lack of priority in your own life rarely impacts just you alone. Make sure that you have the right priorities in life. And we know, brothers and sisters, that our main priority as Christians is that we love God with all our heart, mind, and strength. 
that our main priority is our relationship with the Lord. Because if you adore Jesus Christ, if you love God, then you will do all things for his glory. You'll do nothing backwards. You'll love him and you'll follow him. You'll do his commandments. That means that if you're a student, you'll be faithful. If you're a spouse, you'll be faithful. If you're a child, a grandchild, a grandparent, or if you're at work, if you're at church, you do all things for the glory of God because God is worthy of all glory. And God will help you prioritize your responsibilities and your hobbies in life if you prioritize the Lord first. And it will go well for you. You'll reap the benefits when you prioritize God first in your life. Everything else will fall into place as long as you put God first. Not only will life go well for you if you have awareness, you have wisdom, if you know when to be silent, you exert effort, or have the right priorities. But number six, life works well for you if you're disciplined. Our sixth our six point, life works well for you if you're disciplined. Verse 18, through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. This is just practical wisdom against those that are undisciplined or those that are lazy. It shows them, if you're lazy, here are the consequences. Laziness and foolishness go hand in glove. Slothfulness and stupidity are twins. Undisciplined and unproductive are always connected to one another. The sluggard and the senseless harmonize with each other. People who sit around and do nothing will have nothing to do and will accomplish nothing. And Solomon, in his little illustration, sees this person that just sits at home and there's a leak. He just stares at the leak and just thinks, I think it will get better soon. He doesn't think to call other people to maybe fix the roof. He doesn't think maybe I should patch this up or even put a bucket underneath. He just watches. And the implication is that over time, the whole house will just collapse onto him. The reality of laziness is that idleness leads to disaster. And you might wonder, like I wonder, how did he even get this house to begin with? How did he have his own property? Now it can be that he inherited it. He could have been the lazy person, but he had very hard-working parents that gave him this home. And for a while, he was able to live in peace because they were just, you know, it's basically carryover from his parents. And then one day a storm comes and he looks and he sees the leak. He does nothing about it. Eventually the whole place collapses. Or he could be a renter. He could be renting a place too. And some of you have property and you rent places out and you know what it's like when there's a terrible tenant. You know, they, make it, they destroy the place. It's like, How did you destroy the place? So it would have been two weeks. Or a third possibility was that at one point he actually was working really hard. That he worked hard enough and made enough money to buy this home. And then eventually he just decided it's not worth it anymore. And he gets lazy eventually he loses it. Regardless of how a person got to this place, if he is not faithful in taking care of or what God has given him or maintained this property, he will eventually be destroyed. And this is a sad image, and it should be a warning for us to combat laziness. Because an undisciplined person is a person that idolizes rest. And a person that is a and this is a person who's just a poor steward of what God has given him. Laziness, just like any other sin, does not stay in his track. It will bleed over to other areas in your life. If you're undisciplined in your work, chances are you're also undisciplined in your prayer life. If you're lazy in your sleep, chances are you're also lazy in your devotion to God's word. If you're lazy in your relationship with those in your home, then chances are you're also lazy 
with your relationship with your church family. Slothfulness is a sin that will slowly kill you. We know as believers that we're going to have to give account to the time that God has given us, to the resources, all that he's given us. We're going to give an account to him and how we use it. Now encourage all of us to be disciplined. Paul writes in the New Testament that he beats his body into submission. This means that his, it's not that his body tells him what to do, but he tells the body what to do. He tells the body, this is what you need, this is how much you need to eat, this is what you need to do, this is where you need to go, this is where you don't need to go, this is where you can't go. He makes the parameters because he's a disciplined person. And we understand that that's what we need to have. You want your life to go well, you need to be disciplined in your life. Not only do we need awareness, wisdom, knowing when to be silent, exert efforts, have the right priorities, and be disciplined. But our last point, life works well with integrity. Life works well with integrity. Verse 19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. And I think, when you read this, you think, is Solomon serious? And I think he is. He is just describing to you how the world works. You eat, because you need food, you drink, and you'll be happy. And money helps you solve problems in life. In fact, you probably need money to even have the first two. But, you know, as Christians, we look at this, and we're okay with the first two generally. Right? We're okay with the food and for drinking. Maybe some of us may not understand what's going on here. Solomon's not talking about getting drunk, because earlier he talks about the, the backward priorities here. But the third one is the money one that's horrifying to us. Because how can it be that money is the answer to everything. And that's what's troubling to us. Because obviously we know the Bible and how the Bible describes money. The Bible tells us not to trust in money. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, the writer writes, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us that you cannot serve both God and money. So we understand that a relationship to money is distant, but if we are a believer and we have a right view of money, we know how we can use those monies to glorify the Lord. And Solomon is just talking about just very practical things here, because without money, you won't be able to do things in life. Without money, you won't be able to take care of yourself. Without money, you won't be able to take care of others. Without money, you might not even be able to fix the patch, the leaking roof. But with money, you're, you can do all of those things, and you also support those in ministry. You could even care for the widows or the poor. You can care for other people if you have a right view of money. But in order to have the right view of money, you need to be a man and woman of integrity. Use the money that God has given you, knowing that you're going to have to give an account to the Lord and how you spend your money. And if you glorify, if, you, if glorifying the Lord is what you have in mind, then you will have a right relationship with money. Verse 20, Solomon says that, Furthermore, in your bedchambers do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man. For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Now, this seems like a conflict of interest here, because Solomon is both a king and he's wealthy. And he's saying that, whether, if you, if you are in your bedchambers, don't think or say anything bad about the king. Don't say anything bad about the rich person. Because even in order for you to do that, you need to have integrity. You need to know what you think about and what you say go hand in hand. Scripture tells out of the alpha of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
A person who is two-faced or double-tongued, he is not someone that has integrity. He goes further to say, don't even talk about him in your own bedroom or in, your, in the pr- most private place in your home. Because there's always a possibility that someone will hear it and report it back to the king or report it to the rich person. Uh, this isn't, I don't think Solomon was thinking about Twitter here, but yet that is true as one application. Yes, if you're at home and you're tweeting things, you probably shouldn't do it because it shows how foolish you are. Insulting a king back then is quite dangerous. When you insult a king and they find out, it's, it's, it's basically a death sentence. And for the rich, it could be that you are their employee and they find out that you're talking bad about them and you lose your job. So Solomon is saying, don't say anything bad to those that are in authority over you. You can't slander a king or someone that's over you and expect to get away with it. So you make sure that that doesn't happen. You have to live life with integrity. Don't even think poorly about those that are, that are, in, that are, that are in above you, that are in authority over you. Silence is a sign of a sage. And for most of us, we're, we're not really into politics or we're not working in government. So this verse might sound easy to apply when it comes to the king, but I think you can stretch the application principle to just everyone in our life, everyone that's in the, especially those in authority. It's easy to take shots at those that are in authority over you. If you're in class, it's easy to talk bad about the teacher and how terrible this person teaches. It's easy in, in just in the civil context that we take, uh, we say derogatory things to those in government. And it's very easy for us to stand around the water cooler and make fun of the boss. But yet, living with integrity tells us that that should not be the case. It's easy to speak your mind. It's way harder to control your thoughts and your tongue. And again, yet Solomon's saying, even in your bedchamber, the most intimate part, in the most intimate place in your life, the place that you think no one will hear it, Solomon's saying, even in those places, don't speak evil of them. And the reason why a person will need to speak in the most private place away from the king or the rich person is because they are not going to say this in public. They have to hide away. They have to be anonymous in order to say this. He won't say what he truly feels in front of the king. He won't say what he truly feels in front of his boss because he doesn't truly believe the things that he's saying. If you want to have integrity, if you want to work in your life, if you want to live better, you need to be a person that lives with integrity. People who are two-faced, who are double-tongued, who are double-minded are always people that are living in fear. There's, they're living in constant fear because they are afraid that, they're, that the truth will be made known. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 9, Solomon writes, He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his, his ways will be found out. Proverbs 11, verse 3, The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crooked of the treacherous will destroy them. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 1, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than he who and he who is perverse in speech and is a fool. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7, a righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. Do you get the point? That if you live with integrity, you have nothing to fear because who you are in your thought life, who you are at home, and who you are out in the world are all the same. Remember that God is ultimately the one in authority, and when you complain about those in authority over you, you're really complaining, about God, complaining to God himself. Live life with integrity, and this will speak volumes about your faith as well as the God that you claim to worship.
Scripture tells us to give, Scripture tells us and gives us all of these principles on how to live well in his world. However, we know that none of us can live this out perfectly the way that God intended because of our own sinful nature. When Solomon speaks of how to live well, he is really speaking of aspirations. He's speaking of what he wants to be and what, his, what he wants his son to be. And we know that Solomon, even though he wrote this, he was a hypocrite in so many ways because he failed to live up to even what his own writings uh, say. But yet we know that Christ is the only one. In fact, Christ probably read Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and for him, he's not aspiring to anything because he is, he is all of these things. Christ lived excellently in every way during his time here on earth. Christ lived with complete awareness of himself and his surroundings. Christ did everything in his earthly life with perfect wisdom. Christ knew when to speak, and Christ knew when to be silent. Christ put in perfect effort in everything that he did when he was here on earth. Christ always had the right priorities in his life. Christ was always disciplined, and Christ is the definition of integrity. The wise person that Solomon and many others aspire to be is only fully realized in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet despite the fact that he lived his life, this life perfectly well, with perfect wisdom, he died a fool's death. Think about just this list. We have failed in so many ways. We fail to be a good steward with our life. We have often, oftentimes used our words to hurt other people. We're not always as disciplined as we like. We are, even at times, don't live up to the integrity of, that represents Christ. But yet Christ, knowing all of these things about us, was still willing to come into the world and live that life on our behalf. And when he died that fool's death, he brings us from uh, the life of darkness into the kingdom of the, uh, into the domain, the kingdom, the kingdom of light. He, because of the Holy Spirit, revives our minds so that we no longer have to live like fools, but rather we're fools for Christ. We go and we get to tell people about this message that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. In fact, even if you look at this list, technically, it's it's possible to even if you're not a Christian. But the difference between a Christian and non-Christian is that when we do this, we know that there is an end, and we know that uh, in the end we will have to meet our Maker. The person can do all of the non-believer can do all of these things well, and yet his life can seem pleasant. But yet, it, after this life, for them, the non-believer, the only thing that's left for them is judgment. And as Christians, we should fear the Lord because of it, knowing that God knows everything there is to know about us, and we should worship Him, knowing that now we are created. We have a renewed mind. We are a new creature. God has given us a new heart so we can live for his glory. And may that be a lesson for us. If you want to live well, first and foremost, you need to have a right relationship with him in order to have a life that is worth living. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Lord, we're thankful for your word. And we're thankful for all the principles that has. Because you created this world, you have created how this world works, you know how this world functions, and you give us your word so that we can live well in this life. Lord, I pray for all of us that fail so often, that you give us the grace to turn from that, to turn from sin, and to and prioritize everything right, so that we live in a way that gives you glory. Help us be faithful in our walk this day. And may we be people that are fools for you, that we go tell a foolish message so that other people will become wise, not in because in light of the world, but because of wise in you, Lord. Lord, give us boldness to live faithfully to you and not be ashamed of your word. 
We thank you for this time. In your son's name we pray. Amen.